I got to say, I'm pretty skeptical of celebrity politicians. What we need are people who aren't billionaires or CEOs of companies. Uh, it's actually a point I made in a piece I wrote back in April 2016 in the New York Daily News. You can Google it. And basically, the main point I made was that companies are not democracies. And so CEOs are really ill-equipped to handle the ways in which democracies are sometimes a little bit messy. And it would be nice for politicians to at least have some policy positions that we know about, and even better, a track record working in policy or activism. Those are the kinds of people who will, in my opinion, rebuild the political system. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for January 10th, 2018. So today, in fact, my guests are two really interesting candidates for office. One is running for governor, and the other one is running for Congress. One note before we turn to my two guests, I wanted to make sure that you knew about this. In a couple of recent podcasts, that would be episodes 60 and 59, which you can listen to. And like all the previous episodes, they're all in our archive at workinglife.org. I focused, you may remember, on worker safety and health on the job, which is something I've been really passionate about for a very long time. And it's just a bad scene, which just isn't talked about much, except there was a really strong report by NBC News reporter Susie Kim, and actually she spells her last name if you're looking this up, K-H-I-M-M. And her report came out a couple of days ago. She reported on the immoral piece of refuse in the Oval Office and his decision to cut the numbers of workplace safety inspectors who staff OSHA. That's the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Actually, when I say it was the decision of the immoral piece of refuse in the Oval Office. I really use that in a very loose sense because I don't think actually he comprehends decisions that have to do with policy. Clearly, those decisions were made by the right-wing ideologues who he has installed in places like OSHA. And that cut was about 4%, mainly by not filling the positions of departing inspectors. Now, this may seem like a little thing, but let me just underscore this. That cut will mean that more people will die on the job and get sick on the job. That's just a fact. And the fact is that even when OSHA had better staffing, mostly under Democrats, it was kind of a joke, not through the fault of those good inspectors. It's simply that it was always understaffed if you looked at the task at hand. And it would take probably over 100 years, I'm not exaggerating this, for OSHA to inspect every workplace in America just once. And the whole system just is designed to make a profit off people dying and getting sick on the job, the whole economic system. And what Trump has done is it'll just make that worse. More people will die and more people will get sick on the job. And we're going to continue to cover this throughout the podcast. And I'm actually working on a series, a special series about workplace safety and health. So stay tuned for that. So now let's meet Abdul El Sayed. Abdul is running for governor of Michigan. He first got to win the Democratic primary before taking on whoever the Republicans nominate. He's a doctor 
and epidemiologist, amazed that I could get that out easily, and a public health expert. And the last passion, being a public health expert, has played out in his role as health director for the Detroit Health Department. He's a Muslim American and would be the first Muslim American to be elected governor in the history of the United States. But what to me is important is that if he was to win, he'd be carrying a vision of true progressive values. And let it be said, he's running in Michigan. And that was a state that in the Democratic primary in 2016, Bernie Sanders won precisely because people, and especially younger people, turned out in very large numbers in response, not to a call for centrism, but to a call for very clear, bold, and proud progressive ideas. And it's a state in which Bernie made a stance on behalf of working people, people who have been devastated by bad trade deals, for example. Those trade deals were pushed by Democrats as well as Republicans. People who live in a state where unions charted the basic idea of decent pay and benefits as a social good, which is clearly what Abdul wants to tap into, the people who turned out for Bernie Sanders who want that kind of vision. And Abdul, before we get into a lot of the issues and some of the dynamics in the campaign, because this podcast has a lot of focus on work and the economy, I'm always curious how people get into the kinds of jobs and work that they do. Some of it is by choice. Some of it is because of circumstances. But what made you become a doctor? Well, I'll tell you, I um, I grew up in an incredibly diverse family. My uh, father was an Egyptian immigrant. My uh, stepmother, who raised me, was born and raised in uh, Gratchy County, Michigan, in the middle of the state. And her family draws their lineage back to uh, Abigail Adams, the second first lady of this uh, of this country of ours. And um, and so I'd spent a lot of my summers going back and forth um, uh, between Egypt and uh, and the suburb in which I was growing up, right outside Detroit. And um, you know whether it was my grandmother who is the wisest, most intelligent person I'd ever met out in Egypt, but who never had the opportunity for an education. She was illiterate. Or it was my grandmother who is a nurse who grew up in Flint. One of the things I came to appreciate is that uh, there's something uh, fundamentally common uh, about the way that a grandmother holds you and kisses you and tells you to eat a little bit more. And um, you know, came to appreciate that there was nothing more interesting than people. And I knew that the work that I wanted to do uh, had to be focused around uh, being able to dignify humanity and build the opportunities that so many people lack uh, in our society um, and in other societies around the world. And I also knew that I loved science. Both my parents are engineers, and so science was just the language that we grew up in uh, with hearing in our house. And so mm -hmm. I thought I wanted to use science to help people uh, and that I was going to pursue a career as a, as a physician to be able to do that. Um, came to appreciate, though, that the things that pattern health and disease usually have a lot more to do with uh, the, the decisions that societies make rather than the decisions that cells make. And, um, you know, it's about access to a very basic set of resources, a good job that pays a living wage that puts a good roof over someone's head, puts good food in their, in their, in their bellies and puts clean air in their lungs and clean water in their cups. These are the things that ultimately pattern health and disease. And, uh, when I came to appreciate that and that I didn't really want to be a part of uh, the business of medicine, but instead wanted to be solving, uh, disparities in, in health, um, that I decided to, to go a different path and, uh, dedicated my career to public health. 
And that led you to get into the Detroit Health Department where you're the health director. And so as a doctor, you must have actually learned something about access to health care and thought about what it means for the average person. And it's informed your policy, I assume. Oh, absolutely. Look, I've been in a position where you have to deliver a diagnosis to somebody and you recognize that that day where they're hearing about their cancer for the first time isn't actually the worst day in that week. The worst day in the week is when they realize how much it's going to cost and the fact that they may have to put their family's financial future at risk. And so I believe in universal health care because we as a society have to decide that we're big enough to provide every single Michigander and every single American with access to health care that is reliable and accessible um, and affordable. And so I believe in a single payer uh, healthcare system, Medicare for all at the federal level, and, uh, and a single payer healthcare program for the state of Michigan. And I do that not just because of the moral responsibility, but because it makes policy sense. Mm. We know that it's cheaper, we're providing healthcare for everybody, and we can do things like negotiate with uh, the big pharmaceuticals who have been ravaging uh, our seniors for a long time, making them pay way too much for the drugs that they need to survive. And we can negotiate with them and bring those costs down. This is a responsibility we have, and we have to be big enough to meet it. That's a really great transition, your explanation of how you became a doctor, To One of the things that was very striking to me in your long list of um, things, your agenda, and everybody can see that again, as I mentioned in the introduction at Abdulfor, Michigan, that's A-B-D-U-L-F-O-R-Michigan.com, is the whole issue around water. And because I think people are very attuned to what happened in Flint, I was really struck by your proposal around water that really sounds like it combines two things that are important to you, which is how do you actually make things happen, but also how do you do it in an equitable way? And you have this great proposal about how basic things are going to be free. And then above that, people are going to be paying in some tiered um, system. So why don't you explain that to people and how that fits with your vision? Yeah. So uh, first, you know, the reason water is such a critical issue here in Michigan uh, is two things. The first is that we are surrounded by 21% of the world's fresh water in Michigan. Mm. 84% of all the water in North America sits in Michigan. Hmm. And um, we know that water is going to be a critical resource of the long term. And there's a real responsibility to protect that resource uh, over the long term because it's so important for humanity. 70% mm. of each one of our cells, uh, the, the billions of cells in our bodies uh, is is seventy percent water, and so um, being able to protect that is critical. And because we have so much of it, I think we have to take a lead on uh, on on the environmental protection aspect of water. At the same time, though, we are also paradoxically home uh, to some of the worst water-related disasters in recent memory. Whether that was the water shutoff crisis that 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 continues to exist in Detroit, mm-hmm. or the Flint water crisis, uh, which made international news uh, around. Um, the, the, the poisoning of 9,000 kids and 100,000 people uh, in the city of Flint. And so it is, it is, it is so uh, upsetting to me that we as a state that's surrounded by more fresh water than any other state in the country is the place where we can't figure out how to get water uh, equitably or accessibly to people. I'm guessing that Flint is not alone. It just happened to be explode into the public consciousness. You got to assume that there are plenty of other communities that are suffering in the same way that just haven't been revealed yet. Right. And, and Flint, Flint explodes in the public consciousness because uh, we have uh, dedicated physicians who bring it to the fore mm-hmm. uh, and, and articulate what is happening, even to the fact that even, even against the, uh, the state and, and local officials who wanted to bury it under the rug. And, um, and so this comes to the fore. And we, it highlights the political failures that we have had as a state 
um, to be able to think about resources equitably in any real way. And so our water policy is really framed around the responsibility to protect water and to provide um, the, the, the amount that people need um, without having to worry about, about um, the commodity thereof. And the idea here is that every family uh, needs the basic amount of water uh, to be able to drink, to cook, to clean, and to bathe, and should receive that for free as just a function of uh, of, of being a citizen in, in our state. And then after that, uh, we'd like to be able to incentivize people uh, to use less water um, and, to, and to not use more than they absolutely need. Um, but we also recognize that people like to do things like water a lawn or, or um, uh, or fill up a, a swimming pool and, and, and for those added amounts of water that uh, the cost should increase per unit ounce. And the philosophy behind that is a really fantastic one in terms of a social vision, it seems to me. This is why I'm focusing on water, both because, as you point out, it's a, it's a really important resource. You can't live without it. And also, it's something that makes our life better. But your vision behind that is quite, if I can use the word radical, in that it says that um, we make sure as a society that people, all people, will have the basic water they need to survive and do the basic things human need, humans need, and that those who want to do a little bit more than that, water your lawn or fill your pool because they have the means to do so, essentially are making sure that the other people get their water for free to survive. That's right. I mean, the idea here is that we as a society, right, government is a, is a very human institution, mm-hmm. and uh, we as a society... Uh, ought to believe that uh, that we and our neighbors deserve to have the basic dignities of, of a human life, and water uh, is fundamental to that. And so, uh, for those of us who can afford to do a little bit more and can enjoy the luxuries of uh, of, uh, of a nice green lawn or uh, or a, a nice uh, warm swimming pool in, in the summer, um, that for those of us who who, who have those privileges, um, that we also uh, make sure that in in doing so. Uh, that the people next to us um, get the access to the basic amount of water that they need uh, to be able to live their lives. And and I think um, it speaks to the higher vision for what we as a society ought to be, uh, where we see the people in our communities and our neighbors and our friends um, as, as part and parcel of the collective of us. And um, and I hope that, you know, when we think about uh, our society and what we aim to be able to do, um, that this is the kind of society that's just a bit more just, a bit more equitable and a bit more sustainable because we recognize that uh, the people around us and the people who come after us, uh, they rely on us to be able to uh, to see them as part of us, um, just as we rely on them. And um, you know, and that is the reality of of of, of living in, uh, in in a society, and the reason why uh, we would even provide for a government in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so, to now move to this other place of dignity and a good society. Uh, I speak now as a UAW member, proud UAW member. My listeners know that I often refer to that. I mean, it always blows my mind that Michigan was for many years, for decades really, the heart of the labor movement. It's where in many ways the middle class grew up. Detroit, certainly, if you think about the Mm -hmm. auto industry and, and what people think of as a middle class wage. And now you look at today where that's been undermined and you can't see a better example of that um, the current governor rick snyder who is a believer and passionate believer in the destruction of unions so you're coming at it from a completely different position which is that unions are fundamental to having a decent society yeah look i mean uh, it's it's no doubt that the labor movement has fought for uh, and been able to articulate a vision for uh, workers rights and real people 
um, that are fundamental to human rights and, uh, you know, things that we take, take uh, for granted. The fact that, you know, the places in which we work are safe and healthy places to work. The fact that we get uh, two days off uh, uh, at the end of a week. Uh, the fact that, you know, 40 hours is considered a full work week. The idea of a minimum wage. All of these things uh, are things that the, the, the labor movement um, fought for and won for us. And the idea that the epicenter of that labor movement, the, the state of Michigan, is now a right to work state. Um, mm. And uh, we're led it's by. Crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, it's, it's, it's an abomination. And we have a responsibility uh, to recognize that the labor movement um, is part and parcel of an equitable space uh, here in Michigan and um, continues to fight for a lot of the things that workers need and deserve um, as a function of the, the work that they do every day. And so uh, I, I, I see myself as um, a strong ally uh, to, the, to the labor movement and uh, will stand in lockstep with, uh, with labor as it continues to fight for those things that uh, allow us to, to, to live dignified lives in the work that we do. And, um, and you know, I've been very thankful to have already uh, gotten the partnership of, of, a, of, of unions like the Michigan Nurses Association, mm-hmm. uh, who recognizes that the fight for, uh, for um, universal health care, the fight for uh, a dignified workspace for uh, health care providers is is the fight for patients and it's the fight for people. And so, um, you know, I've, I've never seen a scenario where uh, where labor wasn't fighting for something that was in the best interest of, uh, of the collective of us, of all of us. And, um, and, and then so I consider myself a partner and a friend and an ally. And it in some way relates directly to what we talked about before about water, because people forget this, but you wouldn't have safety and health laws and you wouldn't have many of the ways in which we take for granted a decent life beyond the workplace, meaning beyond our paycheck. You wouldn't have that without unions who led the fight for, you know, the fact that we can walk into a building and not get poisoned by asbestos. And I'm sure it has to do with clean water. So these are all interrelated. They're deeply interrelated. And I'll tell you, you know, the, 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 the point that is often made about, about unions and the reason that pe- people like Rick Snyder uh, are so opposed to them is because they think they're bad for business. But I'll tell you, um, as somebody who uh, was a leader in a complex organization before this at the Detroit Health Department, one of the parts of my job that, um, that I didn't know I was going to face walking in but, uh, but became very imminently clear was going to be a really important part of my job uh, was animal control. And when I walked into our animal control facility for the first time, uh, in the city of Detroit, uh, the, the animal control facility was uh, was only releasing 14% of the animals that came in alive. Um, that means that uh, 86% of the animals that came in uh, were, were were euthanized. And um, and you know we said that's that's absolutely wrong. But even worse than that, Detroit's dog bites rates were among the highest in the entire country. Um, and the space within which we were actually holding dogs was not a humane space. And so we needed to turn that around. And, and we did some things to change the leadership. Uh, we we um, we uh, bargained for a new facility. Um, we were able to raise the, uh, the the budget for animal control, and we were able to turn around and take it from um, from 14% leaving alive to 70 uh, plus percent leaving alive. We reduced dog bites 30%, um, and we were able to uh, to make sure that we were meeting uh, the highest level of of, of humane um, uh, humane sheltering in our shelter. But the reason that happened isn't just because leadership changed. It's also because um, we wanted to sit down with the animal control officers, the people who are doing the work day to day, and ask what, what we could do to improve their lives and their conditions and their work. Mm-hmm. And we found that they, it had been 10 years before they'd, since they'd received a raise. Um, and 
uh, and they were still making $12 an hour, which is what they, they had negotiated for 10 years ago. And so we sat down with their Teamsters local. We negotiated them a 25% raise to $16 an hour. And what we found is that a lot of the animal control officers who had had a second job to be able to make ends meet in their own lives were able to drop that second job and really focus on the job that they had. And they were the ones who were able to deliver those those uh, turnaround results. And um, we found that they were happier, they were more productive, and um, and they felt better about the work that they were doing. And, and for that reason, uh, the ways that they were interacting with people in the city and, uh, and the animals themselves really reflected that. And so uh, I know as somebody who, um, who's been on the other side uh, that when, when uh, workers uh, are represented effectively by unions um, and they feel that they're being dignified, they turn around and deliver some incredible results. And so I don't see the labor movement as being at, at all uh, in opposition to business. Instead, actually, I know that when you sit down and, uh, and you have a good conversation with, with unions, uh, they deliver real results and, uh, and workers uh, outperform anything you ever expected. Um, and that was my experience. Yeah, because people, and I've seen this traveling around for many decades as a, a labor person, when you talk to workers, people want to love their jobs or they want to at least feel uh, valued if they're going to spend half their waking lives there. But you don't want them to have to worry about feeding their family and having these worries that make it very difficult to just do their work. And as you point out in your on your website, that you're going to fight to for raising the state minimum wage to $15 per hour, making sure people have sick days and all this, the things that are important for people to be able to do their jobs because their home life is taken care of. That's absolutely right. I mean, the idea that you can work a 40-hour work week in the United States of America, the richest, most powerful country in the world, and not have enough money to live in a decent home, uh, to provide decent food, to make sure that your kid goes to a good school, um, that that is absurd. And it's so contrary to the mission and the ideals and the ethos of our country. For me, raising the minimum wage is about making sure that every Michigander has access uh, to the trappings of a decent life um, because they put in time, their 40 hours a week. Uh, and I see that as a responsibility that we have. And I know um, that if we are willing to do that, we have the opportunity also uh, to build out schools and uh, to build out our uh, the, the, the offerings that we have that, um, that, that empower people through things like healthcare um, that make them more productive workers and that they're really earning that $15 an hour. So you already uh, did a service for me. I just learned that you now you pronounce it Michigander, not Michiganer. Is that correct? <laughs> it's a Michigander. That's right. Michigander. So when I now travel in Michigan, I won't make that mistake and uh, people won't look at me and know right away that I'm from outside the state. That's very helpful. Well, well, look, if you're a UAW member, you're uh, an honorary Michigander as it stands anyway. So. <laughs> That's, but these things are always important at the bar or the places that they don't want to say that I'm a UAW member. Now, a couple of other things I want to just touch on before we let you go, which is, um, so Bernie Sanders, as you well know, won Michigan in the Democratic primary in 2016. And I don't right. want to, quote unquote, relitigate that race. What's more interesting to me, and I wonder if there's a parallel to your candidacy, certainly in the Democratic primary, is that he confounded, quote unquote, the experts, and it was considered a, quote unquote, upset. And the only reason it seemed to me that it was a, quote unquote, upset is that people didn't pay attention to the ground game, to the turnout, to the outreach, especially to young people who turned out in large numbers, in large part in reaction to what Bernie was talking about. And it seems to me that there's a parallel to your 
campaign, which is if you look at what you are advocating, these are things that I think would appeal certainly younger people, but lots of people. And the fact that you're a young candidate in general compared to the general population. So do you see a parallel there about the way in which you will turn out people for your candidacy? Look, yeah, I, I, I am. Um... I'm, I'm, I'm deeply inspired by what uh, Bernie was able to do for our politics uh, in Michigan and, and in the rest of the country, frankly. Um, but he was able to show that if you are willing to be honest with people, to talk about the challenges that they face in mm-hmm. their lives, and to dignify them by focusing on them, both in what you're talking about and how you're talking about it and to whom you're talking, then you can inspire the kind of movement that really can reshape our politics. Look, everybody's frustrated with politics right now, and they're frustrated because they feel like it's a rigged game, right? It's almost like, uh, I don't know if you ever watched uh, WWE wrestling. You've got, um, <laughs> no. you've, got these, you know, these, you've got these two folks who yeah, are right. uh, beating each other with steel chairs in the middle of a ring. Everybody's <laughs> right. cheering. But you know they go back to the same locker room, right? Exactly. They, they have a conversation, you know, how's the, how's the wife and kids? They get paid by the same boss, and then they go home, and they come back and do it again next week, Right. Um, and it, 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 it almost feels like our politics are the same way. You've got the GOP, you've got the Democrats, but they're both taking money from the same corporate overlords who are buying out for the same sets of policies that tend to benefit the richest of us and forgetting about the rest of us. And what we want to do um, is to be able to usher in a politics and a, a focus of government on real people and the kinds of things that we do to dignify their lives, whether that has to do with housing or health care or uh, a great job that pays a living wage, uh, or access to, um, uh, to, 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 to criminal justice that is with the community rather than against the community, uh, whether that's access to, uh, to, to immigration policy that dignifies the fact that this was a country that was always built to be a place where anyone and everyone could come uh, and, and, and live a dignified life. Um, all of these things are, 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 are where government seems to be veering in the wrong direction, and it has a lot to do with the system of government. And so for us, you know, we're bucking a lot of the, the, the politics as usual uh, 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 suggestions that are made that say that, um, you know, a 33-year-old uh, Muslim guy with a funny name uh, can't, in fact, win a statewide election in a state like Michigan. And what we're showing is, you know, in fact, if you're willing to dignify people by going into their communities and listening and learning and having a conversation and talking about the issues that they are talking about with their family and their friends uh, around the dinner table or that keep them up at night when they're trying to go to sleep, if you're having those conversations, people are going to be a part of this. And, um, and that's what we found. We've got 2,500 active volunteers. We've knocked on nearly 100,000 doors. That was in 2017. Now imagine what we can do in 2018. And not only that, right, we're not taking a dime of corporate money, but we've been able to raise just under $2 million uh, because people are willing to donate to that kind of politics. And so I'm proud of the movement that we're building. I'm thankful for all the people who have uh, been a part of it. And I know that this has to be way bigger than any one candidate. It has to be about who we are and who we want to be uh, if we're going to have a chance at winning. And Bernie showed that it was possible. And our job is to show that it is uh, not just possible, but that it can, in fact, win. And that when we do get the opportunity to govern, we're going to dignify exactly what it was that we were talking about, because it's going to be a collective of all of us. And so the last question um, that I want to bring up is, give me a personal assessment or reaction to what it's like to actually campaign. I mean, you're a very public person. You've been in a very important position at the health department, but it's different being a candidate. So what's been it what's it been like on the campaign trail? Plus or minus things you found that you were surprised by that were tough, or just, you know, a couple of anecdotes about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I um I took a bet on the fact that 
the, you know, the weird circumstance of my upbringing allowed me to have conversations with all kinds of different kinds of people. And I, I took a bet on the fact that um, people have the same set of challenges that they face no matter where they are. If you're talking to poor or working or retired people in places like Detroit or poor or working or retired people in places like the Upper Peninsula, that they're talking about the same set of challenges. And it's been a fact of, of this campaign that people really are talking about those issues. And if you can have those conversations with them and you understand what the challenges they're they're interested in, in looking beyond your age, beyond your faith, beyond your ethnicity and the color of your skin into what it is that you want to do for them and their children. And, um, you know, for me, I, I don't, I don't like politics. It's not, you know, I didn't get into politics cause I, cause I like it. I actually don't, but you know, sometimes the tool, um, is, is what you have, but the project is worth working on regardless. And, and to me, this is about the project. And the thing that buoys me every day is that I get to go and travel across my state, uh, one that I've known and loved my whole life, um, and have conversations with, uh, with people about their lives. And that is, 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 is the light for me. Um, people willing to share with you, uh, things that they don't often tell almost anybody. And, um, and they're telling that to you because they believe, um, that together we can actually solve the problem. And, um, and so I, I'm a lot more comfortable in the role where I'm, I'm, I'm solving problems every day. And I sometimes don't feel like I'm doing that, uh, as a candidate. Um, and I hope that I, I get to, I get to, to be governor and I get to, do that work of solving problems for people every day. Um, and this is the pathway to getting there, I, I, I believe. And, uh, but, but, but for me, the, the challenges of, uh, the, of the political space that we're in right now and uh, this moment of depolarization, they're made so much easier by the people that I get to meet across my state, uh, people who are brave and, and believing in, a, in a, uh, a Michigan that can be more just, more equitable, more sustainable, believing in this movement to getting there um, and sharing in the work. And, um, and that, to me, uh, is worth all the, the headache that comes with, uh, you know, with, with the politics and, and campaigning. And staying in the Midwest, let's mosey over to the 9th Congressional District, and that's in the south-central part of Indiana. And though that seat is currently held by a Republican, and if you look up online, the political prognosticators see this seat as, quote-unquote, safe for Republicans, it may not be so. The incumbent, Trey Hollingsworth, is only in his first term. And you may know, those of you who listen and are kind of into politics, you know that that's when a congressperson is most vulnerable, when he comes up or she comes up for re-election after serving one term. Once they get, stay in office for a number of terms, it's harder to dislodge them, but they can be very vulnerable when they come up for re-election the first time because their name recognition is not high. People don't necessarily have a bond with them that they have after many years. And so it's a seat that will be watched, and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has added the seat to its quote-unquote battlefield list. And into this race wades Dan Cannon, who is pretty much about as non-politician as you can get, and that's by his own account. Now, he will have to wade through a Democratic primary, 
but he's bringing to the campaign a solidly progressive agenda. And you can see that agenda at canonforindiana.com. And canon is spelled, yes, just like the camera, C-A-N-O-N. And Dan, you know, one of the things that struck me in your background that I wanted to start with was your observation that, and I'm quoting this from your website, that I've been one of the working poor living paycheck to paycheck and barely getting by. And that fits with your general approach and your profile, if you will, of being, if you will, a regular person, not a typical politician, as you point out. So tell us a little bit about that background where you live paycheck to paycheck. And I, I assume that means you can relate to average working people. Yeah, well, when I, um, you know, I, I started out life as a musician, and uh, basically I was teaching music and I was uh, playing in bars and stuff like that um, for a long time. I mean, that was that was the work that I was doing, and you know, that is that is you're basically trying to scrounge together whatever money you can you can make. Um, not there, that isn't steady pay. Um, your, your students pay you or they don't pay you. The the you, you you have work in the clubs or you don't have that work and and you know it's it um i i never had any wealthy benefactors behind me you know like mm-hmm. I, I i never had it you know i don't have rich parents i don't have a, that kind of thing um in my corner um and and so you know you have to go through the experience that lots and lots of american people go through and i didn't know there there was much of anything else um you know that that any other mode of existence i I guess for a long time Mm -hmm. uh other than just trying to scrounge together money to pay rent and then trying to figure out how you're going to pay the rest of your bills and trying to figure out how to you know and um what i've discovered as i've gotten into the professional class is that there are plenty of people in the united states that have never had to uh, i would say plenty of people but there are lots of people that that have that have never had to live that kind of existence that really don't know what it's like to have to scrounge together that kind of money. And then there's, you know, um, uh, uh, lots more people that that's all they know. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's just a stark contrast between the way, uh, um, people can live. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost, uh, almost like a tale of two cities kind of thing happening in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I've sort of been on, on both sides of that coin, I guess. Uh, and what has struck me throughout this process is how difficult it is for, working what when I say it through this process, through the process of campaigning for Congress, is is how difficult it is um, now for for people, for working people, you know, somebody that works a sixty hour week and, and is trying to raise, you know, three kids, that kind of thing. Uh, how impossible it would be to do a race this size, to run for Congress. To to you know, I mean it just is is virtually impossible for somebody like that who isn't independently wealthy. Mm-hmm. And so what you end up with is, you know, um, and what we've ended up with in my district is, is, you know, someone, a representative, an elected representative who um, is independently wealthy, can afford to buy a seat in Congress, um, has no idea what it's like to be working for, has no idea what it's like to have to, to you know, scrounge together money out of the couch cushions to pay for, you know, a Big Mac. Or uh, you know to try to figure out how to how you're going to pay your rent, all that stuff. They, they just don't have any idea how what that existence is like, and therefore um, has has no incentive whatsoever to solve problems of the working poor. 
Now, I wonder, and you talk a lot about in your agenda, very progressive one about um, supporting working people in terms of wages, the ability to organize unions and so on. I wonder if you have any thought about the way in which those struggles have expanded a, a lot in the past, certainly decade, from what we used to refer to as the working poor, working class, to what you identified as the professional class, and especially given you know things like costs for health care that affect what lots of people in the so-called professional class who also now struggle economically in a way that maybe wasn't true 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a consistent theme that comes up on the campaign trail is, you know, um, and I think that, you know, if you look at the situation in, in my town, uh, just in New Albany, um, here in Southern Indiana, the unemployment's only 3%, right? But poverty is at 12%. And so wow, you're that, seeing this, this, yeah. That's, I mean, a, great, you know, that's, that's a great that's, contrast. That's a great statistic. I mean, great in a way that it so shows the contrast between so-called unemployment rates and the poverty rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, I was just looking at a chart this morning that the uh, uh, economist Pablina Cherneva has got up on, on her, um, on her Twitter feed. And it's, you know, this, it's one of the starkest graphs I've ever seen because you can look at, at what happened to um, income, you know, from, and, and I wish I could, I could show it to listeners, but uh, it, you can see what, what has happened to, to income for people in the top 10% um, before Reaganomics, right? And, and that has, it, it was just slight increases. Uh, and the, you know, when you see the bottom 90%, you, you, you see big income increases before, um, Reaganomics, you know, from year to year. And, and then after the era of trickle down economics, you see these giant leaps mm-hmm. in income for people in the top 10%, uh, but, but almost no growth at all for people in the bottom 90. And it's just, that's, that's the kind of thing that you see playing. I mean, it's one thing to look at it on the graph, of course, but you see that playing out, you know, everywhere. And, and, and the problem is with the working poor in Indiana and all over the Midwest, and I think really all over the country, is that we've been taught that it's our fault, right? And I, I say we, I mean, the working poor, working people have been taught it's their fault. If they're not wealthy and they're not getting ahead and they're not, you know, able to make ends meet, well, then it's because they're not working hard enough. You know, right. so you're, you're, you you got to work two jobs, you got to work three jobs. And I've heard people say, you know, like b- before I go on food stamps, I'll just work a third job. Mm. Um, and, you know, and, and, and the, the disconnect is, and I think what we've got to do on the campaign trail is to say, look, this is, this is because it's not because we're not working hard enough. It's because the system is rigged. Yep. It's because, you know, the, uh, the it, wages simply are not keeping pace with inflation, I think all of that income is going to the top 1%. And, and that's wrong. And we can do better than that. And I'll add on to that something that I've pointed out to my listeners repeatedly on many podcasts that if you actually looked at productivity, that means how hard we've been working over the last 30 to 40 years, the minimum wage, which is at a poverty wage now, should be actually about $20 an hour. So to your great point, the system is literally robbing people of their sweat and then blaming them and saying, you're not working hard enough, when in fact they have been working their tails off but the system has basically shoveled all the wealth, as we know, to a very small elite. And so I wonder, what possessed you to go to law school? 
Well, um, you know, I am one of those people that sort of hit the career default button and went to law school. You know, it's interesting when I talk to my students now and I ask them what their motivations were for going to law school, I, I find that people sort of fit into one of two camps. And uh, it is the people that thought about being lawyers since the time they were itty bitty and uh, the people who were just casting about after college and trying to find something to do with their lives and, and say, oh, okay, I'll go to law school. Mm-hmm. I sort of fall into that that second category. I mean, I um, I dropped out of high school, uh, so I didn't have exactly a traditional career path to being a lawyer. Um, I dropped out of high school when I was a junior, and uh, I was just kicking around being a musician for a long time. And um, through the process of being a musician, I discovered that, you know, like being a musician gives you an access to people that you wouldn't normally have, right? You know, because you go into bars and stuff like that and people, it's like, it's almost like being a bartender. You sit down and you talk to folks about what's going on in their lives and what's going on in their community and they open up to you. Um, and I learned to care about people and to care about social problems, I think, that way. And I wanted to expand that. I went to college uh, with the intention of doing do good or work. Um, but I, you know, I've figured I'd go into nonprofits and go or go into you know, NGO work, something like that. Um, and I ended up going to law school, um, having never known a lawyer, I don't think ever in my life, having, uh, probably never had a conversation with a lawyer or else they would have tried to talk me out of go to law school, uh, <laughs> and really not, not know anything about the culture of the law. Um, and you know, I went and sort of got immersed in that and I was um, bad at it at first and got better at it over time. Uh, because it's just a different world. Um, and, and I never thought that um, I would end up being a trial lawyer. I figured I'd just go off and, and do nonprofit work uh, with a law degree. Uh, but that's that's not what happened. I ended up at a civil rights firm uh, in my last year of law school, and I've kind of stayed there ever since. And so we've mm-hmm. done uh, inmates' rights stuff and police brutality stuff and uh, just general government litigation and employment discrimination, sexual harassment race discrimination cases of all kinds. And uh, I, I have really enjoyed being able to serve my community in that way. And the list of what you've done is amazing. And the, the fact that you chose that path um, as a civil rights lawyer, you said you, you kind of stumbled into it, but your heart brought you to something that really puts your passion to defend people. And the thing you didn't mention just now, which I just want to talk about for a minute or so, is you were the lead counsel for the Kentucky plaintiffs, if I'm saying this correctly, in the famous case Obergefell, and I'm pronouncing it probably wrong, versus Hodges. Yeah, no, no, you got it. <laughs> I got it. All right. Which was the um, case that brought marriage equality, the rights of uh, gay men and women to get licenses and to be married legally in the U.S., uh, which is amazing. And I'm, I'm curious, like, aside from the details of the case, which I think people know, what did it make you feel like to be representing and be working on this specific case? Well, you know, well, there's just no experience like that. I mean, you know, you, you, it's not every day you get to work on um, the biggest civil rights case of the 21st century, right? You know, so uh, it's, it's in some ways it, you know, I've struggled for the last few years to try to, um, describe that experience. Uh, I don't, I don't think it can be, um, replicated. I, I was, it's one of those situations of, um, being a civil rights lawyer in the right place at the right time. And, um, and being fortunate enough to sort of drive the last nail into the, the, the coffin of, um, 
you know, of marriage discrimination, um, you know, and that's work that people have been doing for 40 or 50 years. I, I, uh, I, am, I am cautious about taking too much credit for my role in that, but it, uh, it was certainly a great honor to, um, to, to have represented uh, the, the folks that I did at the United States Supreme Court and uh, learned a lot along the way and um, just uh, just feel very, very proud of that. So I was involved in a Supreme Court myself, and just it's worth stating for a moment that when you go to the oral argument at the Supreme Court, which I did, I'm skeptical about just about every institution of power, but it is impressive sitting there and you kind of get this eerie feeling about sitting in this chamber and watching the oral argument as much as cynical as one can be. I don't know if you had that feeling yourself. Yeah, it's very formalistic and it's very, um, you know, it sort of inspires you with this sense of majesty, right? And I'm not somebody that is, and I'm not somebody that is that is prone to that. So I mean, I'm I'm, I'm kind of like you, right? Yeah, you yeah. Describe yourself as skeptical of institutions. I certainly am. And I, you know, even even sitting there knowing that, look, these justices have probably made up their minds um, before we ever even sat down at council table, and before you know, before oral argument ever started, they they've got their minds made up. Um, and, and you know that in 99% of, of cases, but there's still something about the theater of the thing with oral arguments at the Supreme Court that's very um, special, you know. And so it was, it yep. was, it was great to be a part of that. There was an instance if you go back and listen to the audio of the oral argument where, um, you know, you, you're there and you're kind of on pins and needles, and everybody's you know very nervous. And uh, there was uh, an anti-choice activist who was notorious, apparently, for doing these kind of things, sitting in the back of the gallery at the Supreme Court. You listen to the audio, you can hear him start screaming as soon as Mary Bonato, who was our oralist, um, sat down. You know, she gets up to argue and she sits back down. This guy in the back of the, the gallery is, is just screaming at the top of his lungs. And at that time... You know, I, I thought that was the loudest thing that I'd ever heard in my life. It was just, I was absolutely terrified because I'm thinking there's a guy that has somehow managed to get an explosive device in the Supreme Court. Right. And these are my last moments on earth. And I'm looking at Justice Alito and trying to think, can I dive behind the bench and somehow get behind him before this thing goes off? What's amazing yeah, about that is, um, and you will uh, recall this, there is such strict sort of behavior uh, rules there. Aside from them taking away every cell phone and every electronic device, you can't actually talk to anybody. You can't write anything. You can't pass notes. And the, these bailiffs walk up and down the rows. And I had leaned over actually to just say two words to someone. And they immediately came over to shush me. So it's a very uh, strict environment and sound. That's probably why the sound of this person screaming sounded probably even louder than normal. Oh yeah, because it's deathly quiet in there, you know, and and uh, and this and everybody, like I said, everybody's on pins and needles. Yep. Um, anyway, but it was it was it was quite an experience. I could tell stories about that all day long. Probably before the listeners. And we no no, I'd love to spend an hour on those because they're fascinating to me too. But I do want to move on to your to your the issues that you're running on, and people can find this again at, at Dan's website, which is canonforindiana.com, and he spells his last name C A N O N canonforindiana.com. And rather than go through all the specifics, what really struck me was the very last sentence. And I will talk about a couple of the issues that you brought up, but the last sentence 
on your issues page, you say we can be incremental in our methods, but we must be revolutionary in our aspirations. And I thought that was pretty uh, a great statement. I wonder if you could just expand on that. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, and, and there's a lot of um, relitigation of 2016 that goes on all the time, right? You know, the sort of um, uh, Hillary versus Bernie type of stuff. And a lot of that I think is, is pretty dumb. Um, but, but the way those camps, as you know, tend to get divided up is between the incrementalists and the people who, who think that we need, you know, drastic change, um, right now. I mean, I am more towards the latter category. I think that we need a lot of drastic changes. And I think that, uh, you know, in American society, um, there's a, there's a lot that we need to do to, to get caught up with the rest of the world. There's a lot that we need to do for our people. And I think that, that the sooner that stuff can happen, the better. Um, you know, what I think, um, gets, gets lost, uh, between the sort of Hillary and Bernie camps is, is, you know, like when Bernie was talking about, um, like tuition free public education or, uh, universal healthcare or all that stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't think that, um, he intended to say, let's pull the, the pin on the social grenade and just, you know, have this stuff, have everything happen, you know, tomorrow, you know, let's, let's put all this stuff in a place tomorrow. Um, but he was giving, you know, people something to shoot at, right. I mean, he was giving, you know, these uh, sort of talking about these revolutionary things and saying, this is where we want to end up. And I think that conversation is so important to have. Like we need to start talking about the kind of America that we want to have in five or 10 or 15 or 25 years. And, you know, we want an America where everybody's got healthcare. We want an America where people are not going bankrupt and, and dying because of medical bills. And we're, we're, we, we want an America that, you know, where, where people can get a good education and they have, you know, clean water to drink everywhere, all that stuff. And, and, you know, uh, and Bernie did a lot of talking about the end game. Um, which is great. I mean, I think that's, that's the kind of stuff that people really needed to hear uh, that they weren't so much hearing from the Clinton camp, not that the, the Clinton camp didn't necessarily have those goals in mind in some way too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I, you know, wh- where that camp got caught up, I think was talking about, well, here's the next step and here's the next step and here's the next step and never looking at, at the target that we were shooting at ultimately. Right. Um, you know, here's how we improve the ACA, but not here's how we ensure um, universal health care you know, that everybody could get without breaking the bank. Um, and, and, and Bernie talked about those things. And, I, you know, I think took took a lot of criticism, uh, rightly or wrongly, for for being too revolutionary and not talking incrementally uh, enough. I think that your approach incremental and then revolutionary is especially um, revealed in your view about healthcare, which you sort of mentioned just now a couple of times, where you do support Medicare for all, single payer system, but you say let's start with cost controls along with the public option that would be gradually expanded to Medicare for all. So, is that a specific example of where you think you are believe in, in incrementalism that eventually ends up in revolution? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a good example. Um, in the sense that if we try to just go single payer everything um, tomorrow, I don't think a lot of us know um, what would happen. You know, there's so much of the economy and so much of our money that's that's tied up in 
um, it, the healthcare system that we have that, uh, you know, it's, it, I think would be irresponsible social experimentation to say, let's go single payer tomorrow. I don't know. Maybe it would work, maybe not. Um, but I think that, that we should at least be saying single payer is where we want to end up. And then let's start talking about what are the stones in the road? How do we end up there? Uh, you know, and, 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 and that's, those are the important conversations that we ought to be having. I mean, almost, you know, it's almost um, universally accepted on the left. If you talk to people, and I think if you talk to people um, about where you think, you know, where the United States should end up ideally, you know, uh, where we should be talking about aspirationally, where, you know, where, where do we want to be in 25 years? It, no matter who you talk to, almost everybody says we should end up with something like a single, a true single payer system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the real question is that in the stuff that we, so we should say that we should say that's what we're shooting for. But then the real questions become, you know, the, the devil is in the details, right? The real questions become, how do we get there? What's the best way to do it? So to wrap up, one of the things that I love talking to candidates who are first time candidates, and you make that a point, you haven't led a politician's life is what has been like to be on the campaign trail, things that you either found totally surprising or inspiring, or, you know, some difficult things, because let's face it, running for office is a challenge for people just at least physically. And so what's that been like? Wow. Um, you know, again, that's something that I sort of struggle with verbalizing. Um, and, and I, you know, hopefully I'll have a better perspective on it when it's all over with. I will tell you, it's been just kind of a whirlwind over the last year. Um, and there's been some uh, really discouraging things that would inspire uh, cynicism in the most optimistic of folks. But I, I, I think um, also a lot of really encouraging things and sort of revitalizing things that I've experienced. I mean, you know, one thing is that um, doing this stuff and, and being a lawyer to an extent is like having a backstage pass to life, right? You know, so you get to see um, how the nuts and bolts of society work and people want to talk to you about important issues. Um, they want to, you know, it's not, it's not the sort of, you know, if people, people, people feel like they can talk to you about um, important stuff and not just small talk you, right? I mean, you get right into the nitty gritty of the stuff that uh, people are going through and what makes them tick and what affects them on a day-to-day basis and the really important things. Um, and that's very gratifying. You know, one, another thing that's very gratifying is that you see just how many people, if you get out into your community and you're really trying to figure out how, wh- what the problems are, who's working on solutions to those problems, who's got you know, answers right in your backyard um, to, to, you know, the social problems that are going on in your community. Uh, you find out that there are a whole lot of good people that work really hard every day trying to make the world a better place. And that's very encouraging. And it's very, um, it's been revitalizing for me and sort of renewed my faith in humanity throughout this process. So many good people that work without um, expectation of lots of money or expectation of accolades or, you know, just because it's good work to do. Uh, and, and that's been, that's been, uh, I think probably the best part of this whole process, just seeing how many good people there really are out there.
now it's time for our Robber Baron segment. And this week, our Robber Baron is Jeffrey Marazzo, the CEO of Spark Therapeutics. Now, why does he deserve this honor, the crown of Robber Baron of the Week? By greedy CEO standards, he made a modest, and I'm saying that quite sarcastically, a modest $4.5 million in 2016. And of that $4.6 million, $3.5 million comes from stock that he's been awarded. I've made this point repeatedly, and I think it's good to emphasize it. Most CEOs get their huge amounts of money, their wealth from stock options, not necessarily from the paycheck they get every two weeks. Of course, those paychecks would make any of us very happy, but most of the greedy CEOs get tens of millions of dollars from stock options. So this guy's overall compensation was relatively modest. But check this out. Just a few days ago, This company, which is part of Big Pharma, a pharmaceutical company, announced that it would charge, and I hope you're sitting down, $850,000 a patient. $850,000 per patient for a new treatment for a hereditary form of vision loss. And that's a record price. Think about that. That's almost at a million dollars per patient per treatment. This therapy treats a rare form of vision loss that's caused by an inherited genetic mutation. Now, it's supposed to be a one-time treatment, and damn it, for $850,000 a pop, it better be. But this is the astounding greed of big pharma and the morally outraged practice of bankrupting people and our society because someone's going to pay for this by charging astronomical prices for treatments to make people healthier or to allow them to live. And of course, once that drug starts selling at $850,000 a pop, the company will start banking even more money and the stock price of the company will likely go up, which will make Jeffrey Marazzo even richer. And that's why Jeffrey Marazzo is the robber baron of the week. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my guests, Abdul El-Sayed and Dan Cannon. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. As this new year has started, I look forward to having you join up and listening to the podcast on a regular basis. You can sign up to the podcast if this is your first time listening to it in some other way. Sign up at workinglife.org, and you can become a financial sponsor of this podcast so we can continue to bring you this incredible information that you're really not going to hear anywhere else. Look forward to having you back next week.